You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 169 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, David Leo Rice. He's the author of Drifter. On Wednesday, December 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, I'm teaching a free creative writing workshop at the Los Angeles Public Library. Go to lapl.org. That's lapl.org to sign up. And it's on Zoom. And it's free. And you don't even need to be a Los Angeles County resident. Just be in any county and a resident with Wi-Fi. Join us. Remember, there are only 16 shopping weeks until it's baseball season. So as we get closer, let's all tip a cap to our favorite team. I use that joke every December. I wait patiently for December to arrive, to say how many shopping days there are until baseball season. I really wish it was a funnier joke. It's more of a, oh, that's a piffy joke, fella. It doesn't really get a full laugh, but it gets it feeds my soul in a weird way. And when I say it, someone cracks a smile, a small smile, and I'm like, yes, the wait was worth it. All right, in this interview, we discuss NFTs, Charlie Kaufman, David Cronenberg, Donny Quixote, Danzig's penis size, Mitch Hedberg, and so much more. There are only three shopping seconds until. Hi, I'm David Leo Rice, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have David Leo Rice. He's the author of Drifter. It's a collection of stories. David, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. So you're like, you're in Brooklyn right now. Is it cold there? What's, what's our weather forecast in Brooklyn? Yeah, I got to do the David Lynch uh, basement thing. Right? Oh my God. Isn't that great? Isn't <laughs> that the greatest thing ever? Totally. It's, it's 66 degrees in Brooklyn today and cloudy. <laughs> Everybody out there have a great day. Yeah. David Lynch doing that from his like, wherever, I think he lives somewhere near Mulholland Drive and on that I, side. I would of hope town. so. Yeah. And just knowing that he does that fills my heart with like delight constantly. And it's something about the, I don't know if it's literally every day, but it's at least the ability to imagine that it's every day is part of it, but like you never give up on doing it, especially, I guess this is part of the point, but especially since the weather is obviously like almost always the same. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, and the, and there's an earnestness about it that's just adorable. At the same time, it's like, is he really this earnest? And then you watch like, uh, what was his first film? What was the one where it was like? Eraserhead. Eraserhead. Yeah, you watch that and you're like, ah, maybe he is that earnest. <laughs> yeah. I was actually just in Philly last week over Thanksgiving, which is where Eraserhead, I think it might have been filmed in LA, but it's definitely about Philly, right? Because he lived in Philly oh. when he went to art school. Okay. So it's like that vibe of like old kind of decrepit, you know, ominous ex-industrial Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's gentrifying, but it's like a lot of that's still there. You can yeah. find parts of Philly that just look like a race. <laughs> that's cool. I, I've, um, I've been wanting to visit Philly for a long time. I kind of have a, I kind of have a little goal this next year to go visit other baseball. Like I want to go to other cities on the East coast, but I'm like, 
while I'm there, just go to their baseball stadiums too. I want to go see the Mets. I want to go see the Phillies. I want to see the Yankees. I, I got a plan this year. Do it. They're all, they're all waiting for you. <laughs> we, we can't start the game without Shane. <laughs> something's missing. Something's missing, guys. Right, right. <laughs> what, what are we going to do? The, the person comes out to sing the national anthem. They're like, oh, say, oh, cut, cut, cut. <laughs> Right. There's actually that Mitch Hedberg joke. I think it's Dufresne rather than Duchesne, right? Do you know that joke where he's like, uh, uh, they're calling at a restaurant. You know, he's like waiting for brunch or something and the host is reading off the names on the list and they're like, Dufresne, Dufresne, like party of two. Like, you know, anyone here? No? Okay, moving on. And Hedberg's like, wait a second. Like who can eat at a time like this? People are missing. <laughs> I love him. Uh, yeah. You know, and I didn't even really know who he was until a few years ago. And then as, and then I went down the YouTube rabbit hole and I'm like, oh, yeah. this is why people adore him. Totally. I mean, he literally like hacked language in some way. Like there's something about the specific phrasing of the jokes that are just intrinsically funny. I mean, his delivery makes them funnier, but he's someone who you don't need to know anything about in order to see why it's funny. Unlike yeah. most comedians where it's like has to be kind of their persona and their backstory and everything. Right. And then they try to come in and deliver that backstory as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's only funny as a persona, whereas Hedberg, I guess, like Stephen Wright, is just a true joke writer in a really yeah. almost old school way, but he turned it into something else. Yeah. And I was watching because um, he wears with him wearing sunglasses a lot of the time. He had a he was very nervous of stage time. So he was closing his eyes a lot and he would wear sunglasses to keep his eyes closed while he was. It's so crazy. I'm like, how can you be a stand-up and be nervous? Because you got to do stand-up six nights a week at least if you're going to try to get in that game. I don't know. I guess some people are just compelled to totally embrace whatever the you know whatever's going to destroy them. Right? I forget who said this, but it's a great line. That's like, you can't avoid dying. So the best you can do is choose what kills you. I like that. Shall we smoke some cigarettes, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> if you choose comedy it'll kill you if you choose cigarettes it'll definitely kill you <laughs> the um i was just at the cafe i'm i for the first time i'm reading uh murakami and actually liking it uh book oh, called nice. the, wind, the wind up bird chronicle love it yeah and i was just it, there was this whole passage in the middle where he's in the well and he's like supposed to be thinking about death and he does not thinking about death and the the, the little girl the girl who hangs out with him is keeping him inside the well and I'm just like sitting there, um, because I was it was dragging for about 50 pages, and then I'm like, oh my god, this is why we stay with these books. Totally, and he's great. He was a huge influence for me in terms of turning real spaces into occult spaces. So like the well next door, or the hotel mm -hmm. hallway, or the I think it's IQ84 has this whole scene like where people go into the stopped subway tunnels, or you know, a traffic jam on the highway, and he just really has this knack for turning actual geography into dream geography yeah that's cool and it's, it's, I, see i tried to read iq84 and that's when i just gave up on them and then someone told me no dude you got to read them and i'm like where do i start <laughs> you got to ask when someone says well, yeah, you have to read them like yeah i have to ask where do i start you know me a little bit you know what i hate you know what i love tell me where to start and they told me that and i went oh you're so right am i this transparent <laughs> they know you well. Am I this simple? <laughs> it, it works, right? I always yeah. say when, when people ask me that question for someone like Murakami who has, you know, a huge body of work like that, I feel like it's always 
the follow-up question has to be start one place if you might only read one. In that case, I would definitely agree with Wind Up Bird Chronicle, but start somewhere else if you know you're going to read a few because then you can kind of work up to it. I'm yeah, I'm I'm after this one, I'm sure I'm going to put them down for about a year or so and then I'll and then I'll come back to them. That it's, seems right. You know, the pleasure reading, it's so hard to come by when we're uh, working on uh, working on our own stuff, our friends are putting out books, you know. It's, it's kind of the same thing. You, you can choose what kill you, what kills you, right? If you choose books, books will kill you. Um, and yeah, I will die by books. I will be okay with being, you know, I would love to be pummeled by books to death. That's what I want to happen. Let's make it like 50 years from now. But I'll just, I'll stand naked in the town square and they can, th- and the books will be useless by then, right? So they'll just pummel me to death with books and then they can bury, bury me right there. It could be like a Borges story that there would be a, a cult trade in which book was the one that finally killed you, right? And people would disagree and they say, oh, is this one? And someone else would say it was that one. It'd be a whole oh, world there we go. <laughs> I know which one will kill me already. Everybody poops. Uh-huh. That'd be the one. <laughs> the final blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these like liter- liter- literary like things that have changed people's lives and civilization. And then it's going to be a book about how kids feel okay pooping <laughs> Tr- truer words were never spoken right hard to hard to con- convey that much truth into words right? <laughs> it's a philosophy true <laughs> yeah and you're you're in brooklyn yeah i'm in brooklyn how long have you lived there almost 10 years maybe eight and a half nine years yeah it's pretty good always the same apartment oh really mm-hmm. did you get good rent yeah, we got good landlords, kind of old school Italian landlords who like it's not officially rent controlled, but they've never raised it. And they raised it like 50 bucks once. Wow. And they're That's good so people. Cool. I, I speak Italian with them. I grew up not not super fluently, but I grew up speaking Italian because my parents have friends in this little town in Italy who they would go to visit a lot. Uh-huh. So I kind of I kind of soaked it up as a kid. And with these like quite elderly Brooklyn Italians my whole interaction with them is in Italian, which I, you know, kind of endears us to each other and makes it. Yeah. You know, I mean, we still pay them, but it, but it feels like an extended family type thing in a way, which is cool. The end. Um, when is, is it hard, is it hard to say, Oh yeah, I'm, flu- I'm pretty fluent. I can speak in Italian, but it's kind of hard to imagine until you get in the situation and they ask you something in Italian and then you, and then you're like, Oh my God, I forgot. I know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's totally passive language understanding and that like i just absorbed it so if you asked me to like write out any given phrase i might or might not be able to but in the moment like you said it's like you almost hear yourself respond it's almost like an uncanny possession kind of thing like you don't know that you know it until it comes out your mouth that's cool what 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 little town in uh, italy it's called sant'agata di mugello which is just north of florence it's between florence and bologna in tuscany oh wow yeah. That's fun. My parents, it's beautiful. My parents were like total hippies. They, so they, they met in Philadelphia, which is why we went back there to kind of see their, uh-huh. their at home front last week. And then after that, after they got married, they took a year off and I don't know, mid seventies and kind of bummed around Europe. And I don't know what their plan even was, but they ended up in this town and it was right when there was lots of uh, like red brigades and other kinds of sort of like leftist terrorist action in Italy. So like they arrived in the, Bologna train station when it was rubble like the train station was obliterated and the train still came in 
and they ended up in this village and everyone thought that they were like CIA or it was kind of, you know, no one knew what, like, what are these random Americans doing here at this time? But over time they befriended people. And yeah, this kid who's probably our closest friend of the family was like 11 when they first met him. And now he's like in his sixties. It's kind of amazing. That's, that is so cool. And it's just bumming around Europe in the 1970s. I think people don't realize how hard it was to get from one country to another and to figure anything out pre-internet and just in general, you know, totally. It was tra- travelers checks. It's like the John the Carey world. Of, you know, people trying to get across borders and no one knew who anyone was and who was. You know, I, I like that type of uh, like Cold War intrigue kind of stuff. It's yeah. just a, a rich realm for for narrative. You know. Yeah, I mean, I was there in the nineties. I didn't even know how to use a phone when I was in Paris. I got dumped in Paris, and then the person I was supposed to stay with was like, "Oh, yeah, you can't stay with me." I'm like, "What? <laughs> I had no money," and I'm like okay, what do I do? So I was just kind of wandering a little bit. You get that today, there would be a, there would be a solution within minutes and it took me a day to figure something out. And it's, I miss that. It's the whole meme of like all movies that would be ruined if people had just had cell phones. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's true. It's hard to come up with situations where people can't, you know, whatever kind of plot point you would have that would compel some like, case of mistaken identity or case of somebody arriving at the wrong time and not finding the other person, like all the things that uh, filled out a narrative are kind of elided now. It's hard to work in the cell phone and still have it be suspenseful and interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, and sometimes my mind is still blown because I, then I get got into my old man thing and I go, we have a computer in our pockets. This is so strange. We can, it's, it's still mind blowing. I kind of love it and I hate it at the same time. I'm deep in that headspace right now because I'm working on a book about David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, writing about Videodrome and Existence and just that whole, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety about technology. You know, I hope I did. And- <laughs> did I? I think I did. I did first, I freeze. <laughs> We, we were <laughs> speaking of the Cronenbergian. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were, yeah, you know, it says my internet was a problem. Um, what, what, what did you just say? I'm sure it was the absolute most brilliant thing. And I hope you repeated exactly as you said it. <laughs> the, the secret, uh, the secret meaning of life. Um, <laughs> I just said, I've been working on this book about David Cronenberg. So thinking a lot about this uh, ambivalent relation between you know, what we view as like the biological or like autonomous human and technology, you know, Mm -hmm. and Cronenberg, I think was really great, especially in his eighties and and nineties films was really great at coming up with physical images to show how media would penetrate the body, you know, and that, that was like his gift, I think of like people plugging wires into themselves or like inserting videotapes into their body, you know, and like static turning into like, you know, mental tumors, if you go back and watch a video drum and just like those kinds of imagery or the um, bioports and existence and that you'd be uh-huh. like jacked into a video game through some orifice in your spinal cord. And he just right. got it right away. Oh, I haven't seen that in so long. Now you're bringing back all the visuals. Mm-hmm. What, what, yeah. what started you on the Cronenberg book? I've always been a huge fan of Cronenberg. And I actually saw a lot of these objects at, I saw them in Amsterdam, but I think it was a traveling show that was like a museum, almost like a sculptural show of the objects from Cronenberg films. Mm. So it was like the 
insect typewriters from Naked Lunch. That... Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> my nipples just got so hard. They it's really oh man, I would have loved to see that. It was fantastic. All of it, yeah. the surgical implements from Dead Ringers, like the whole deal. Wow. So he, he's been a huge influence. But in terms of this project, uh, the Scottish writer named Chris Kelso invited me to come aboard to co-edit an anthology. Mm. So it's sort of, uh, we commissioned essays and some fiction from a bunch of people, and then I'm going to write my own essay for it also. Oh, that's great. That's going to be it's a lot of cool. fun. Yeah, yeah, and we got an interview with Cronenberg too, which was pretty awesome. And we did it through an intermediary, but we got to like send him our questions. So at least he's in there in, in a way. Oh, also. you didn't get to meet him? Where does no. he live? Do you know? He's from Toronto. I think he probably still lives there as far as I okay. know. Um, but I'm sure, you know, he probably gets around the world, but I think he's there. I saw him in New York once where he came to do a reading for Consumed. Remember that novel he wrote? Maybe. No, I don't. It's pretty good. It's actually yeah. quite, you know, it feels like a treatment for, for an unmade film. Yeah, but it, yeah. It's great. You know, it, it's really interesting. Yeah. I saw him actually after the reading, like I was coming out of the bathroom and he was coming toward the bathroom and I just kind of ran into him and we just kind of like made eye contact and I was like, you know, and then he passed by <laughs> right. and I told my friend after like, you know, I said that like I'd been tongue tied. I was like, I wish I had just given him a hug. And my friend was like, dude, he probably would have maced you. <laughs> Still to get maced by Cronenberg is, is that's a great story there. <laughs> right. That, that should be the title of the anthology. <laughs> Getting maced by Cronenberg. <laughs> I was in a bath. I was in a bathroom at a small club in uh, Los Angeles. I was seeing them. Um, who was I seeing? I think it was, was it Red Cross? And, um, and I, I'm sitting there at the urinal. I look over at Stanzig. <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, we both have our dicks out and I can't approach him right now. Hi, Mr. Mr. Zig, Mr. Mr. Stan Zig. Do you go by Dan? Like, either way is fine by me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Nice penis you have there. <laughs> Real fine. You should be you should be proud. You should be proud. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they, you know, yeah. they, there's been rumors, but man, they weren't kidding. <laughs> Uh, is he really as short as they say? I mean, he's famously quite. Yeah, short, I mean, right? I mean, he's short, but I think that you know, it's uh, I, I'm not you know, um, I mean, I'm six foot, so he was like right about here. You know, it's not that short; it's probably about like five, six, five, seven. Oh, I see. Not, not like five zero. No, 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 no. <laughs> Unless, <laughs> but, but maybe he was wearing lifts. I have no right. idea. Yeah, there you go. There you go. His, his penis was too distracting for me to see his shoes. <laughs> right. Yeah, you couldn't. Uh, <laughs> you, you had to judge based on that. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh... That's pretty great. <laughs> That's actually a big thing in um, consumed in in the Cronenberg novel. There is this whole subplot of. I think it's a real thing of a penis disease called Peyronie's disease, which I, I'm pretty sure is real, which causes like, you know, your penis to go in different directions and like kind of twist and corkscrew. And in the book, it becomes a whole trade of 3D printed dildos of people with this condition. And there's like more and less valuable ones. And it's like a whole part of the novel. It's oh awesome. my God. Now it'd be cryptocurrency, NFTs, right? Yeah. <laughs> And Cronenberg actually made an NFT recently of himself dead. He created like an exact model of himself and he made an NFT of his actual living self embracing his dead self. And it's this huh. uh, death, death mask scene, which I think you can see. I don't quite understand what it means that like anyone can see an NFT, but only one person owns it. But I guess like you own the source code or something like that. Yeah, I'm still, 
it's intriguing what part of it it's all it's almost disgusting and intriguing all at once you know or you're just like you're like wow that's a beautiful car accident that's what it's what learning about nfts is for me yeah yeah well it seems like the implosion of something or some like uh crisis of value and like what's worth some what's worth anything and you know how do you evaluate it is always interesting to me when that gets exploded but i don't know if it's a good sign you know, it, it intrigues me because a lot of it's about here. Here's here's where my mind goes on this. A lot of it's about faith and community. So and I'm learning about this NFT thing where it's about community and, and you can only get on certain um, discord channels and into certain things or certain um, with certain people. If you have a if you have this certain NFT and you're all excited about the NFT and the NFT like has gone up in value. 10 times the amount that you purchased it for because people want to be a part of the community and they have faith that the NFT is going to continue to grow in value. It's so weird. Uh, it's like people being magnetized by an orb or like an arc or some kind of yeah, unholy object yeah. that like radiates power in some way. I don't know. And then I, and then I start to think about that and I'm like, is that so weird? Because, you know, like living in Brooklyn or, or, you know, you like, if you live in the right neighborhood, and there's like the right cafe next to you or the right bar next to you um, that it, it's very successful because you're in the right spot and you just create a little bit of the right ambience. And all of a sudden, all the people come together there. So is it so weird that an NFT works? Because in real life, we kind of do the same thing. Yeah, especially in these like aspirational cities like, like New York and LA that draw people who not only have the same values and maybe the same related background, but who have the same imagined future, you know, or feel like they want to be heading in the same direction, which causes yeah. a kind of comp competition and stress sometimes, but also causes, you know, ideally a sense of common cause and a sense of like a community built around people actually trying to like feed their energy into the same goal. Yeah. And just survive. I mean, especially after pandemic, when we did the lockdowns and stuff, I'm like, oh my, because I, you know, I don't know if you've ever, um, there's this book called Tribe by Seb Sebastian Younger. And it's all about how even people in the most violent situations in prisons, they would rather not be in solitary confinement. They would rather be in the violent pod. And it's because you will lose your mind if you don't have eye contact with someone. And even to be judged or be assessed in a violent environment, we're always assessing. And I'm, I was, and pandemic kind of drove that home where it's just like, well, you know, when I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen anyone for three weeks. You know, it's like, I, I wouldn't even look at a cat. I need a cat. I need a cat to look the eyeball at the, in the eyeballs. And I'm like, all right, just hang on a little more. Another bottle of wine. You won't gain weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think it's, you know, people want, positive input like you know love and affirmation and approval but i think on an even deeper level people just need to be recognized like on the deepest fear of something like solitary confinement is just that you cease to be certain you're real yeah and and it was fun and even judged i was out with a i was out with a, someone who i'm a, you know kind of friends with and I, I went for a walk with her and um during pandemic you know this when we were doing social distance walking where it's just like we had a yardstick between us and but it was funny because I took my hat off and I, you know, and it's like pandemic gave me more gray hair and I could see that she was like, like looking at my hair and, it, and I was like, it's kind of like going, oh, wow. Like it was kind of like, oh crap, Tony's going through it. And just, just that piece of judgment made me feel warm inside. 
it was like okay you recognized something about me it was a trip yeah this is the kind of thing i don't know if it's part of the wave of like pop psychology things that have been kind of debunked i don't know if this is true but i've heard from a few places that not only do prisoners try to stay within the tribe and not go to solitary confinement but prisoners sometimes provoke guards to beat them just to avoid not having any contact makes sense they they need a cuddle and instead they get a baton yeah there's just like someone to prove to you that you and the world meet at a certain physical point and that you're not a ghost or a you know a non-existent entity yeah you're blowing my mind, man. How, 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 how did you how did you become a writer? What 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 happened in the process of uh, when you went? Oh crap! I'm a writer. I think that's what we usually say, right? We have the epiphany. <laughs> yeah, that's like the Hemingway thing. If you can possibly not write, don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, there's so much truth to that too. It's that I think that there's a. Um, there's a thing where uh, it's like you kind of have to write. And I, I mean, personally, I'm I'm a less better person if I'm not writing. <laughs> it's just <laughs> I, 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 I tend toward cranky. And if I'm not writing, I'm cranky. So I have to. Oh, yeah. I'm saving humanity just by writing, getting something on the page. Nothing that, you know, not by the giving them giving people things to read. I'm saving humanity just by putting things on a page. I think that's huge. I saw somewhere Stephen King said, you know, someone asked him, why do you write every day? And he said, because I realized that if I ever missed a day, the next day I'd be on a highway overpass with a sniper rifle. <laughs> I never heard that. That's like, that is such a great example. Oh my God. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually. So when did you sense. put your sniper rifle away and go, wait a second. I think there's another way out of this. this damn overpass. I'm done with you. There's, there's gotta be another way. It's, it's cold out here. I know. Wait, my, 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 uh, what do you call it? My, my gun's locking up. Right, right. I can't, I can't. I'm just, I'm not made for this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's maybe in a, you know, more mellow sense. It's like those prisoners that, I think even when I was a little kid, you know, I mean, I love stories and I had a vivid imagination the way a lot of kids do, but I think I started to have this terror that maybe my thoughts were for nothing. Like the fear that my thoughts were for nothing gave me this sense. Like I have to, even if I make it up, I have to make up a reason that they're for something. Wow. That is cool. So when, so when did you start putting it on, on the page when you were a kid to, to, Mm -hmm. Yeah. How old were you? As early as I can remember. So probably, you know, grade school, third, wow. fourth grade. And I used to do a lot of stuff with my best friend when I was growing up. We were kind of like a creative duo and we would sort of, you know, make up movies or or uh, write comics or, you know, the kind of things that kids do. But we would come up with scenarios that would use our town of Northampton as this kind of enchanted landscape. You know, and we would sort of come up with a map. And this is something I think I've carried through even till now. Like we would come up with maps of what like the town within the town, you know, what the real town was. And it would be, you know, coded things of, you know, which teachers were really robots and like which, you know, other teachers were really aliens and like which, you know, shed somewhere was a portal to another, like Murakami, right? It was a portal to another world or, you know, there was an abandoned mental asylum in our town uh-huh. that we actually never, never really broke into, but 
other kids would go into it and we would sort of go around it and have stories of what was going on in there. And, you know, and New England also is full of gothic energy and sense that, you know, who was sacrificed in the woods or who's buried out in this place or, you know, there were abandoned factories around. So as we got to be teenagers, you know, and then could drive, it would kind of just expand that feeling. And I think I've always felt torn between film and literature. You know, and I'll probably never resolve it entirely, but I often think of novels and short stories not as treatments for films, but as kind of as much as possible as like fully rendered movies. You know, I try to like make it come alive as what it would be like to be in that experience, which is always between a real place and a kind of fantasy yeah. you know, energy about that place. And, and, the, and your, your first novel was all based where you grew up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the first one that I wrote, I mean, I wrote some pretty, you know, like, Warm up novels, but the first one that I, it's yeah. funny, like the warm up not you have this is a way, we'll get back to that in a second, but it blows my mind that um, and I had to do this too. People are like, How do you how do you learn how to write a novel? And I'm like, You write a novel. <laughs> that's that's kind of it in the end, and it's not going to be good. And and that novel's gonna die, and it teaches you how to write the novel when you when you get to it. And I think the possible like I teach students like the impossible paradox that you can't really you know you can tell people but they kind of have to experience for themselves is that looking back on that warm-up novel you realize both that it wasn't good and that it didn't have to be good Mm -hmm. and, and that you know the goal was just to finish it but in order to get yourself to do it especially as a teenager you have to believe that it's going to be good right you can't do oh, it yeah. if you think it's not going to be good yeah and I think that's just a, there's something very painful about that because you have to like die and come back from the dead in, in that way. Oh wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, and oh, so you teach as well. I teach, yeah. Cool, yeah, I teach too. It's nice. Uh, how, uh... It's fun. It's it it keeps me on my game because I'm trying to tell them the my nuggets, and then I'm like, oh wait. I better keep working on my nuggets <laughs> and, uh, and then they, and I just love getting the, um, a lot of it's just getting the feedback from the students, like even their questions and their questions like, Oh yeah. How do you, how do I work out of that problem? Or I don't know how to work out of that problem. Here's what you might do. It's so much fun to kind of have that constant challenge, you know? And I think a big part of it also, especially if you're trying to teach a process is you realize how idiosyncratic your own process is because other people either don't get it or just naturally do it a different way. Whereas if you never try to teach it, it's easier to assume that you're just doing it the way it's done. Right. And it's in every, everyone. And and I've learned that even like, you know, we all have our unique voice when we write, we all have our unique processes, but nobody does it the same way. It's mm-hmm. and it and there is no way you ha- like you have to work. It's almost like you have to go through the different ways, and then you go, oh, and here's my way, and it doesn't equal anything. <laughs> right. We just know it works for you, and even that's not a given project to project, right? Like you might approach yeah. something the same way as the last time, and it just totally doesn't work. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that thing about you know the warm up novel is interesting. Also, or at least my experience was like part of what you have to do in order to write a novel is to be able to understand that it's just one thing, that it's not like your entire life's vision. Because I think, when, especially when you're a teenager, you wanna put everything you have into it. And it becomes a paradox because you feel like you're never gonna get another chance. You know, you have to do like your supreme statement, you know, when you're 17. And of course, the more you do that, like the more you 
throw into it, the more likely it is that you'll never finish it because it just keeps growing. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the, you were writing as a teenager, you wrote a novel. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote, you know, various things that I called film scripts, but were sort of scenarios of different sorts. And yeah. I shot some films also. I made some like kind of small town horror films when I was a teenager. Cool. Uh, and I wrote a novel. Yeah. So my first like warm up novel, which I still want to, maybe I have to rewrite it. Or I still want to do something with <laughs> was about Giacometti. Right. So it was sort of this whole concept about, you know, the sculptor Giacometti and his, the way that he would sculpt these extremely spectral people, right. These almost like stick figures oh. and the kind of, conspiracy in the novel was that that was how reality actually looks and Giacometti had been given these glasses by some kind of you know grand architect figure so that he would be the one person who could represent the true reality but Andre Breton and the other surrealists created a kind of counter conspiracy where they would marginalize him as an artist rather than letting him admit that he was sculpting like the real world and uh-huh. therefore like the, tr- the truth never got out. <laughs> Oh, that sounds fun. So what, man, you had a good brain in your teenage years. I was just going, how do I make an Ollie out of this? How do I, how do I look cool skateboarding? <laughs> well, there's something to be said for that too. You know, <laughs> mastering physical space is no, uh, no small feat. <laughs> well, I mean, I really didn't take writing seriously until I was in my late twenties. So I, I, I kind of came to the game late, even reading, I came to the game late. So, um, which is, uh, it's so much fun to hear people that have, like actually did it when they were younger and stuck with it. It's... Yeah. For me, it was the only thing that made me feel. Yeah. I guess like we were saying before that I wasn't just wasting my time having ideas that I couldn't explain to anyone. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that I felt crazy. It was that I just felt like it was, I, I don't know. It just made me sad to feel like thoughts were just going to die. And therefore if I could write them down, I felt a little bit more like maybe they'd be preserved. Wow. I like that a lot. What, um, and when did you get, when was your first novel published? Were you young? I was 30. Oh, that is pretty young. Yeah. I mean, comparatively, I mean, no, uh, I I remember being 19 and reading Thomas Pynchon's V, which came out when he was 26, right? When I was 19, when I I remember this vividly, when I was 19, I was like, what took him so long? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, as, as even like people were, you know, I, you know, I became like as every twenty-something uh, dude should obsess over Bukowski, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like it's a rite of passage. When you hear another twenty-something finds Bukowski, you just give him a smile and go, "Good job, kid." And um, but I remember like he didn't even really make it until he was in his fifties, and I'm like, "Oh, that poor guy." And now I've just passed fifty, and I'm all. <laughs> hopefully i'm a bukowski i can make it <laughs> hopefully yeah, the always... big hopefully the big make it soon <laughs> there's no uh there's no telling right it, you know i mean i think the bukowski thing too is like it's actually re- related to that in a way which is sort of the hope not just that your thoughts would have meaning but that you're kind of just down and out life especially as a 20 something would have meaning that just like hanging around bars and like talking to people and stuff could itself be poetic which it takes, yeah. the, the, you know, takes the craft of a Bukowski to actually make real. But as a 20 something, it's appealing to think that that could be possible. True. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's, um, 
you know, years ago, I read uh, when they first came out with his one of his first books of letters, I think it was called Screams from the Balcony. And I was reading those letters and his correspondence. And, and there was a lot where he's just like, dude, you got to stop drinking. You know, I stopped, I stopped drinking. So I, it's like, he wasn't drunk. Like maybe he was drunk when he was writing a bit, but he was crafting and there was, it wasn't like, it was kind of a persona. <laughs> Absolutely. Same thing as with uh, Philip K. Dick and acid, right? He wasn't like on acid all the time, you know, he was mm-hmm. sort of thinking about it, but he wasn't just in that state. Yeah. 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 And cause I remember being in, you know, when I found him, I'm like, Oh, I got to start drinking and that's when I'll write, you know, and, right. and now I'm, it's just, and I guess I had to do that to get to, to be feel okay to be creative, but, you know, and then I know, and, you know, it's, and a lot of people will, will do a certain thing, but now I can never even fathom writing um, with, with any alcohol in me. I just, it, it, I'm like, Oh no, you, you got to learn how to hit it with absolute like cup of coffee. And that's all I need. Let's go. Totally. I mean, I think part of it also, if you're a certain kind of, especially very young person, it's natural to want to feel that you could find a way to escape work, you know, because you're right, you know, as say you're a teenager, you're right to be like, I don't want to just have a office job, right? I don't want to just, you know, catch the train for the, you know, whatever, whatever, like that, you know, to escape that type of like systematized office life is a totally like admirable goal if you feel it as a teenager. But the fantasy, I think, is that you could just be a vagabond and that itself would turn you into a Bukowski or a Leonard Cohen or something like that. And at a certain point you realize maybe, you know, like you said, late twenties, early thirties, that's like a classic, uh, like new cycle age uh-huh. for, for many people. Um, you realize at that point that if you really want to do that, you have to work just as hard and maybe even harder as if you yeah. had the office job and, and, and maybe it is possible, but it's not going to be a dream. It's going to be like a grind in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is working harder. I totally get, I mean, in, when I was, I, I think I was just turning 30 and I was in tech and I was just, and I was doing the train to the office and I, you know, and that was a dream because I didn't have to do manual labor anymore and I can make a lot more money. And I remember just being like, I got to get out of this. This is it. This, this is my chance. These people are all, the, this isn't uh, I, I don't get these people, you know, they have a ton of money and they're miserable. And I just, and I'm like, I don't, I don't need it this way. I can't do it this way. <laughs> so that, that's when I kind of had my epiphany was like, I'm out done. I have to, I gotta, I gotta do the grind and, and, the, <laughs> and grinding for love, you know, 14 hours a day rather than, pushing pencils or working on a server for eight hours a day is so, so much more fun that, you know, that's. Well, cause something in you is being fed by it rather than something in you being fed into it, which is the alternative. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so many people stay in that alternative and it's, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know psychologically if I could have ever done that and been okay. <laughs> it's terrifying. Do you ever read um, bullshit jobs by David Graeber? No. Oh, it's amazing. I'm reading it right now, actually. And it's sort of this, he goes in different directions with it, but it's basically this theory of bullshit jobs, which he defines as jobs that people know they're overpaid for and that are understimulated by and ultimately are less happy with than what he calls shit jobs, which are jobs that are genuinely meaningful, but underpaid. Yeah. Like being a writer or being a teacher. Those are almost always shit jobs. Whereas, you know, working in like, 
PR, customer relations, and that stuff is more a bullshit job. And some right. people can take it, but he has a lot of testimonials in there of people who say the same thing where they're like, I'm literally sitting in my office, like pretending to be busy. And like, everyone knows there's nothing I need to do, but I like have to act like I'm doing something. And it's actually worse than, you know, working harder for less money. And, and he said yeah. something, I just read this part the other day. He said something that kind of blew my mind where he said, um, teenagers often become obsessed with the type of monster movie or monster story that are about monsters that can turn you into one of them. So like vampires, zombies, werewolves, right? They don't just kill you. They make you a zombie, werewolf, uh, vampire. And he's like, in a way, if you're a teenager looking toward the adult world, it's a kind of metaphor for like, how do you not become undead the way everyone around you appears to be? Huh. I like that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a question we could all ask ourselves. (laughs) I know, I know. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then, um, so this collection of stories, this is something that this is like a decade in the making or something, right? I mean, this this is a lot of, a lot of years, a lot of years. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's sort of time when I was also working on the novel. So like I was working on these stories either between novels or I think more often um, between drafts. Like I would do a draft of the novel, put it aside, work on a story or two for a while do the next draft. So it was kind of the um, counterpart to the novels that were also written over the past decade or so. It's almost like, and this is, it's almost like um, consensual adultery where it's just like, you're, 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 you're with your main lover. And then you're like, okay, I got to go tap this little lover over here and nobody gets in trouble for it. And, and you actually get published. <laughs> it becomes something. It's super important. Yeah. No, and I think that's actually a really interesting question is like, how do you integrate like the promiscuous part of your own spirit into your life in a way that doesn't hurt anyone? Yeah. And and for an artist, it's, you know, there's a kind of obvious answer that it's like within your projects, but it's an interesting thing in general is like, how do you, doesn't even have to be in terms of human relationships, but it's like, how do you focus enough on things to not feel like you're a dilettante or just kind of like, drifting among too many things but also always have like the doors open around you and not feel like you're in solitary confinement yeah and then and then guys like us are the greatest guys to be in relationships with because we're because <laughs> we're doing all our problems on the paper we're not doing them out in real life <laughs> yeah it's true and, and often i think not only are we not doing them in real life but we're the kind of people who are disincentivized to like, like there's, I mean, there are a lot of writers who obviously do all kinds of things in real life also, but I feel like many writers have a kind of shyness, you know, or, or are actually like not the kinds of people who would be like really putting themselves out there in a lot of different ways, but that energy comes through in your work. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes you, there's a lot of times you don't even want to tell people you're writers when you first meet them. Cause I got the eager eyes and they're like, you can help me. And I'm like, no, I could barely help myself. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> barely hanging on man I, I i got no bandwidth to help you <laughs> seriously yeah. yeah so like airline thing of like uh, put on your mask before helping other people <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i think that's totally right it also makes me think of you know this idea of like dying and coming back from the dead in your late 20s or early 30s you know relates to the idea of like the 27 club where people like actually dying in their late twenties. Like there is some sense 
I think there's even some like astrological stuff that I don't really know about, but but it does feel like just true that many people between let's say 27 and 30 something die or like end some path or like, you know, have to grieve either something literally or at least some idea of themselves. And then in the best case scenario are reborn in like, you know, ready to go, ready to like really be who they're going to be in their thirties. Interesting. I, like Murakami actually. Uh, what, uh, how is it? How is Cause I don't know that much about Murakami. How is that related to him? Exact same thing happened that he ran a jazz club in Tokyo throughout his twenties. He was like oh, a yeah? club manager. And then according to his self myth, at least he was at a baseball game when he was about 30 and something about like the ball flying through the air, some, something caused an epiphany in him. And then he like went home and wrote his first novel, you know, at the kitchen table or whatever, and won like a big award in Japan. And then the rest was history, but he's someone who didn't, according to him, did nothing before he was 30. Wow. Yeah. The first novel and the rest is history. Can we beat him up? Can we just, can we just like, I want to give him a hug too for everything he's done for us, but you know, just, just one little beat up. <laughs> to be fair, his first novel, his first two novels, he didn't want translated and for a long time, either weren't translated or circulated as kind of unofficial PDFs. And then were published a few years ago and they're actually really bad. <laughs> oh, interesting. I read them, you know, when they came out. I mean, they're not terrible, but they're nowhere near as good as this later thing. Yeah. Now, now, have your has your work been translated? Not very much. Not very yeah. much. Maybe a couple stories here and there, but it would be nice to do a translated version of a whole book, which which hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I know. I was. I remember um, when Jesus Jerk came out, and the my uh, my agent was pushing it to all the foreign. No one was biting, and it was driving me crazy. I just wanted to be translated in French. And I would go to I would go to Shakespeare and Company and I let's do this, you know. No, no one cares. No one cares, Tony. I'm just like that's. I learned, for the most part, that's kind of the uh, <laughs> the, the thing. No one cares, but but oh, they care a little bit. And when they care a little bit, that's when you got the. That's when you're like in your happiest moment, and then they stop caring again. <laughs> but back to solitary confinement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, if this, you know, it, it's just, it cracks me up like before paper, the, how people would just tell stories on, you know, you just, you just get a, you get an Apple box, no soap box. You just get on there and go, here's my story. Yeah. It's an interesting thing about the difference, you know, speaking about this uh, like promiscuous relationship between novels and short stories. It's an interesting idea that I think in terms of people telling to each other, we always tell stories, not novels, right? There's something about the form of the story. If you look at, you know, bodies of mythology, fairy tales, uh, religious texts are always story collections, not novels. Oh, right. You know, and there's something about just the fact that like in a single sitting or a single evening, you can tell someone a story, whereas a novel is like only a printed form. I mean, they're audiobooks, I guess, but like the essence of a novel is something that can only exist when you have the technology to physically make books it's not innate to human nature the way telling stories is i think you know that's that's i didn't even realize that what was i mean um what who's kind of credited with the first novel yeah there, i know like don quixote's got a that, that's that's kind of close to it right or some people will say the tale of genji right by lady murasaki mm -hmm. which I, I could look it up it's way earlier it's like like 1200s maybe wow super yeah. early um definitely quixote's in terms of like you know, European novel that's pretty early. 
And then by the time you get to like the 1700s, then there's a lot of novels. Right. I read, I read Don Quixote probably about 13 years ago just to get through it. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know what? I'm a novelist. I need to know this. (laughs) And, And, um, I mean, it was really satisfying to read it. I'm not, I probably won't read it again. I'm sure there's scholars on it just squirming right now going, I've read it 13 times and I, but um, yeah, it's, it's there, there, there was a beauty to just kind of going, Oh, wow. I do know the Quixote experience, you know? Oh yeah. I met a professor. I took a course on, on Quixote and there Mm -hmm. were various like guest professors would come in and one professor had made her entire career arguing that between volume one and volume two, which was like a 10 year gap, uh, Cervantes had been raped by pirates. That was like her theory. <laughs> that ex- somehow explained all of volume two. Oh, which funny. I guess, I guess yeah, it's cause... possible. He was in prison, right? He was taken prisoner in maybe Algeria, something like the right. Battle of Lepanto, something like that. And she had a whole thing of what that had to do with why volume two was so much more out there than volume one. Huh. Maybe she just liked rape. Also possible. <laughs> She's like, or, or pirates. <laughs> Your pirate rape. <laughs> she was probably putting out personal ads going, do you have a pirate suit? Call me at. <laughs> could, could be. What's yeah. her name? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it, yeah, it's something though. I mean, it's really, I don't know. I wrote a TV pilot once about like a modern day Quixote, basically, or, like the sort uh-huh. of world of uh, 20th or 21st century like reality TV version of a Quixote character who got blown up as a media star for all these like random fights that he was starting, believing they were in the service of some kind of, you know, some kind of greater good. And he became like a, you know, a viral meme type figure. Yeah. Yeah. What, and um, was it, was it bot? No, I kind of shopped it around and then it never really went anywhere. Yeah. Something I still, I still think about, or maybe going back into it, but I haven't, I don't know. I always feel torn between, uh, you know, prose writing and screenwriting. I am interested in screenwriting. I mean, it's something I probably will do more of, but but I haven't in a while. Yeah. It's such a trip because it blows my mind that, you know, with the screenplay, that's essentially employing hundreds of people in a certain weird way. And in a novel, you're you're kind of on your own. And both are great. You know, both are really sexy. If If these hundreds of people can put a vision together and it comes out and you're like, Oh, thank you. You know? And then the novel is just like, um, there's the, I think that's why I just gravitate toward the novel so much. Cause it's just, we just, we stand alone. We, we live and die. We're, you know, we can't blame anybody. Oh, that editor was terrible. It's like, no, no, you're the fault. It's that you're at fault. That director didn't do my vision. Right. No, you're at fault. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, cause I think writing prose, maybe particularly novels is almost a form of directing as much as it is mm. writing, you know, because you're, like you said, you're trying to like fully realize it. So you have to really think about what the acting would be like, so to speak, or what the cinematography would be like, or what just oh, the wow. whole vibe would be. Whereas a screenplay almost in a literal architectural sense is a blueprint, not a finished product. Yeah. You blow my mind again. You like scared me to write a novel now because Cause that's a lot. I, I got to be a director and the costume department and the makeup department <laughs> and almost the actor. It's like, you have to play every role. You can't, right. just, like, you can't just say what the role should be. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Bill 17. 
<laughs> right. No, right. people are going to read no, it. Yeah. No other 17 year old is going to come help you, right? You got to do it. <laughs> yeah, which is a great thing, too. I mean, that's sort of why I think of novel writing, you know, gives me some of the satisfaction that I would otherwise seek in directing in a way that only screenwriting I don't think would as much. Did, did you ever read, um, what's his name? Charlie Kaufman's novel that came out. Ant I'm looking Kine. at it right now. Oh, really? Yeah, it's right, right <laughs> on my shelf over there. I love Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, you know, I couldn't believe how much I loved that book. I didn't think I would. It's a real work of art. And, and it's partly, I guess, because he kind of is a director. You know what I mean? It's like he, yeah. you know, it's obviously like his essence is writing, but like he does have a, cumulative vision like he can see what it should be like not just put it on the page now did you see his last film the one uh what was it i think i'm, I'm thinking of ending things yeah mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that i'm actually looking at that book too by uh, ian reed um, oh right because it was based on a book yeah mm -hmm. it's a good book uh i thought it was pretty cool i mean i couldn't, couldn't necessarily locate like a core or essence of of Kaufman's movie version of it, but there was something cool. I mean, that family dinner scene I thought was was like quite fun. Like that was there was something like pretty depraved and had like a pincer play vibe to it. Yeah, it's it's there was so much I loved about it, but I felt like the third act was just just dissolved. It wasn't. I just I don't feel like it was set up well at all. I love the first act. We're twenty minutes in a car. How great is that? And it's compelling, compelling 20 minutes in a car, but to kind of change the protagonist on us somewhere <laughs> hour 10 in, it's like, oh, dude, no, no, no. You're, you're good, but you're not that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or it was like it uh, skirted the line between the kind of gimmick that actually leads to something meaningful versus the kind of gimmick where you feel like it's just toying with you and you're like okay fair enough <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know because maybe i'm wrong maybe you maybe you felt it worked in the end i like the actual ending sequence as a sequence but i agree that it didn't immediately uh gel in an emotional hole with whatever had come before it yeah yeah but, but i liked it i mean i would say i, I found it to be cool and i really loved um anomalisa his stop motion animation oh i haven't seen that yet i still need to see that it's great it's super like harrowing it's probably saying a lot for him his bleakest film cool well, it's, it's kind cool. of like it's like hopeless and a really dark kind of i mean it, the less said about it the better but it yeah it's, just, it's a kind of heaviness that even he has never reached before i don't think wow even scandinavian people are going we will not watch that film it's too dark <laughs> <laughs> seriously seriously yeah yeah no he's i don't know sometimes i go back and read um roger ebert's old reviews which they put up on just like ebert.com there his whole archive yeah, is on there yeah. and he had a great line i forget if it was about um being john malkovich or eternal sunshine i think it was about being john malkovich where he said uh like billy wilder charlie kaufman is one of the only great writers whose medium just happens to be screenplays Oh, wow. That makes sense. I keep forgetting. Yeah, that he did, yeah. 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 I forget. I keep forgetting. He did eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, which is just, I find that one of the most romantic movies I can think of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's how do you forget a breakup? There's such a lovely question to it, you know? And I think that's what at his best is what's best about him is there's like a 
I mean, maybe actually that's what's missing from I'm thinking of ending things a little bit is like uh, there's this actually relatable emotional core to something like Eternal Sunshine or even Adaptation that then all this like craziness is kind of hovering around, but you can feel that core is like the sun that all this other, you know, planets and all these other ideas are orbiting. But if you don't have that sun, it's like everything just flies off into space. Right. Yeah. It almost get like even being John Malkovich is just like, what would it be like to be in someone else's head? That's kind of the whole movie. And and yeah. then and then just go crazy zany from there. It's What's a huge it took me a long time to like fully internalize, and maybe I still haven't, but I think it's a really interesting idea and actually relates to this thing of like the teenage novel being too overstuffed is like the deepest stories, maybe especially if there's something really strange about them, get stranger the more limited their emotional scope it. So if they're really about like a central feeling like, or a central question, like what would it be like to be in someone else's mind? You can like spread that out and like really think about it and go down crazy rabbit holes and like go in all these directions with it, you know, and bring in comedy and horror and surrealism and whatever else you want. But it's like all glued onto this question. That's like a real question. That's actually like, there's some stakes at like finding out what that question means or what the answer is. Whereas I think if you take, um, Maybe something like I Heart Huckabees. Remember that uh, David O. Russell movie, which is also pretty cool, but it's like just kind of like all like there isn't that central question of like what is it really about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So when are we starting our film commentary podcast? I think we're on it. Here's episode <laughs> one. Right. <laughs> welcome, Matt. welcome everyone. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're great. We got. Discussing, uh, yeah. <laughs> we we got to do new theme music now too. And uh, okay. Like I need another guest this week on Drinks with Tony since we're now on a on a new podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. You, you also don't you have a podcast too? I do have a podcast. I co-host a podcast, which is why I have this mic. Yeah. Um, called Wake Island, uh, which is sort of it's also an interview show about aesthetics. It's sort of like dark, dark aesthetics in contemporary life. So you know, writers, photographers, other kinds of artists. Um, we've actually done a couple about LA. And we interviewed Matthew Spector, who I believe you interviewed also. Oh, yeah. I love him. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, me too. Me too. So he, uh, yeah, we got, got got into some LA head trip kind of space. I was I was thinking, what are my, because I was because I, I was like, what are my favorite books this year? You know, everyone's putting their Spotify list on social mm-hmm. media. And I'm like, I think my favorite novels, Jacket Weather by uh, Michael Decapite. And, um, and then uh, favorite memoir is Matthew Spector. I, that's always crashing the same car is that uh, i forget uh-huh. the, yeah yeah i loved it it's great totally so where can they find the podcast anywhere Sa- same places so spotify uh, apple podcasts stitcher anchor any of those places i cool. usually listen on apple podcasts but i think spotify is probably the most popular and the title of it again is wake island okay cool yeah. david thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me this is fun that's great David Leo Rice on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Drifter. And speaking of filmmaking and screenwriting, next week on the show, my guest is Robert McKee. His new book is called Character, and it expands on his first book, which was the entry point for many screenwriters that was called Story. Robert McKee, next week. Thanks for listening and keep reading books. They bring out the magic in our lives. See you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM. KPCRLP Santa Cruz.